0: I had an opportunity to hear a guy present the evidence for the resurrection. and I remember driving home here. I'm 17, 18 years old. And I'm thinking, you know, this is true. Huh? This really happened.
1: Interesting. You bring that up. You need to train these kids for what they're going to hit when they go to college. Absolutely.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III. third. Today, Richard joins Dr. Michael Easley of Michael Easley in Context. Dr. Easley was the eighth president of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois. Michael Easley in Context wants to help you understand how God's Word applies to the context of your life through interviews with subject matter experts and men and women striving to obey Christ and His Word. And now, here's Dr. Michael Easley with Richard E. Simmons III.
1: Welcome to the broadcast, this is Michael Easley in Context, and I'm delighted to have my newer friend back on the broadcast, Richard Simmons, not the exercise guru, but the author who's uh, written 11 books and counting, and we're talking about a new book today on the existence of God, a collection of essays, and first of all, you know, it's always the obvious question everybody asks, why write this book, Richard? What was it that said, okay, I need to put this one together? (laughs)
0: Well, I have always been enamored by books on apologetics. I think there's a reason for that in my own life because a particular book had such an impact in my own coming to Christ. I've often realized that to come to faith in Christ, first and foremost, you have to understand the message. You have to understand the gospel message. At the age of 11, I heard it and I I was moved by it. I understood it, but I didn't want it. My heart was kind of, as, as, as Paul says, was stubborn and unrepentant. In high school, I had an opportunity to hear a guy present the evidence for the resurrection. And I remember driving home here. I'm 17, 18 years old, and I'm thinking, you know, this is true. Huh? This really happened. And I never really thought about that, and yet I still wasn't ready right. to surrender. Then as a junior in college, one of my good friends who was a Christian and I was not, we drove down to Disney World. It just opened. It shows you how old I am. But he had us listen to these cassette tapes, and I'd never even seen a cassette tape, on Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And I was absolutely blown away. And two or three days later, he was asleep. I got on my knees and I waved the white flag and I surrendered. But I look back and realize how that book and how apologetics played such a role in my life. Now, I've written two other books on apologetics, one about 30 years ago um, called Remembering the Forgotten God, and then one on the validity of the Bible, but I've always wanted to write a book presenting the evidence for God, because what I've learned is all the reading that I've done, I've come to the conclusion that the evidence for God is compelling. Mm. It's very powerful. The problem is So many of the books that are written on the existence of God are so weighty and so heavy and so hard to understand. So what I I wanted to do was write a very well-researched book that was easy to understand so that a 17-year-old could read it and really get it. And so that's really what I sought to do. It's 57 short essays that can be read in 5 to 10 minutes, divided into 10 sections, such as, you know, the issue of evil, the issue of meaning. And so that was my desire. But what really sped it up in actually producing the book was what I saw as the rise of atheism in our country. You know, Gallup came out with basically a study saying that atheism is truly on the rise, and where it's on the rise most is our young people. And so that really kind of got me. Also, Pew Research and Fuller Seminary did an interesting study. They recognized that a lot of young people who grow up in Christian homes, who grow up in the church, when they get off to college or when they get into their 20s, they lose their faith. And so they assembled a number of these young people and asked them a simple question, how did that happen? And one of the largest response they got back was, we had questions and doubts about our faith growing up, and nobody ever answered them. Nobody ever gave us any satisfactory response. I'm not sure what the parents might say or the youth directors might say, you might you know, just have faith, but we need to give them answers when they have them. Interesting. You bring
1: that up because when another church I was involved with at one point, I was very probably not diplomatic adamant about, we need to review this, uh, bring your friend to the youth group nonsense and, you need to train these kids for what they're going to hit when they go to college.
0: Absolutely.
1: And and this was long before we had the numbers on the indoctrination and what happens to these young men and women when they go off to the university. But be that as it may, we're in a new generation, a new time, and we do need apologetics on the lower shelf. I was intrigued just scanning again the first few chapters. You quote Mortimer Adler, Sam Lewis, all these guys that I've read over the years, and especially Sam Harris, rather. I was so infuriated. I think the last time you and I talked, we chatted about Sam Harris's influence. And here this guy is a angry atheist and he's got this New York times, you know, megaphone. And I was encouraged and intrigued that, you know, you mentioned well-researched. You've read his books on humanism and so forth and so on. In fact, I think Sam Harris does one of the better gospel presentations in his first chapter than most Christians.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I have not read that one that you just mentioned. That's pretty interesting. He doesn't believe
1: it, but it was great. (laughs) (laughs) The hard part about so many of these things is what do we talk about, Richard? But I just did a whole bunch of podcasts on evil and where is God and why suffering and why injustice. Give me some of your high-level points because you do talk about the presence of evil understanding it, who determines it, what's evil, et cetera, why all the violence. So, So give us, Richard Simmons, some thumbnails on how we think about evil today in
0: a culture that loves evil. Well, first of all, I think it's important to realize that probably the number one reason people give for not believing in God is because they see so much horrific violence and appalling wickedness out in the world, and supposedly, this universe is ruled by a loving God who's sovereign over it. And so they reject God because of that. But when it gets right down to it, it's important to think logically about this. In order for there to be evil, you think about it, there has to be an objective standard of goodness that's being violated. And where does this standard of goodness come from? Well, as Christians, we contend it's been handed down to us by God. But if there's no God, then where do we get this standard of goodness in which we can define evil? And if there's no God, then human beings have to come up with the answer. Uh, Some people say you got to come up with your own morality, but when it gets right down to it, if God does not give us these objective standards, it's got to come from human beings. And who should those human beings be? Well, usually they're the people that are in power. But where you run into problems is when the people in power are named Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Vladimir Putin. That's a real problem. It's kind of like, I find it interesting how Adolf Hitler, his approach to life was, we're all products of nature. Nature is cruel. So why shouldn't I be cruel? Why shouldn't I unleash my cruelty on the world? In fact, Charles Darwin says, this is what we should expect. But they didn't believe in evil because they didn't believe in an ultimate standard of goodness. This came up, Michael, in the Nuremberg trials, which is where they, after World War II, they tried all the Nazi war criminals. And the Nazis, they made an argument that why in the world should you hold us guilty for following the law of our land? This is what right. we believe, this is what we followed. And Robert Jackson, who basically was the uh, chief prosecutor, he was an American, he said, in determining issues like determining where it comes to evil and these dastardly deeds that y'all did to the Jews, he said, you've got to look at a law above the law. He said, it's got to be transcendent in order for us to be able to identify what is evil. And because of that, they were all found to be guilty. I think this is a really significant part of this argument or this issue is what is a human being? If A human being is nothing more than a product of nature a mass of chemicals, is nothing but physical, then why not eliminate him? I mean, he's no different than uh, uh, maybe a cattle in a slaughterhouse, or you go duck hunting and shoot a bunch of ducks, or deer hunting and shoot deer. And so that's kind of the argument that so many people believe, is that because there is no God, there's no value to human life. But the problem is, is that we recognize that human beings have great value. I mean, think about the people that you love, your wife, your children, and to say that human life has no value basically is a massive contradiction. I tell you one story that I tell this, I find this kind of interesting. One of the stories that I tell in the book is about a a woman whose name was Andrea Dilley. And she grew up in Kenya with missionary parents. And so she was around Christianity all of her life. But she noticed just how the people in Kenya were so horribly treated and how life was so painful for them. And she began to wonder about, where is God in all of this? In fact, then she left her parents when she got into her 20s, and she lost her faith completely. And one night she was discussing with this young man who also was an atheist, but he was very consistent in his beliefs she was arguing that human beings are of great importance and she believed in human rights and justice. And he says that does not exist in a world where there is no God. And they were getting into this and it, it dawned on her, Michael, right in the middle of this conversation. She said, I was arguing with this man from a theistic worldview. And I realized wow. that I couldn't make these arguments if I was an atheist. <laughs> and she says, I left the church and I left the faith because of evil and human injustice, but I came back to the faith for the very same reason. You can't make can't those make arguments it. unless wow. you're
1: a theistic. Wow. So we have a problem today, Richard, that we have unbridled crime in the streets. We have uh, DAs and states giving convicted felons a free pass out of prison because the system was co-opted and unjust and unjust and discriminatory and fill in a blank. People commit evil, yet there's no consequence. Why should I believe in this God when evil people run free and the poor Asian lady who is just trying to get to her apartment in New York is clocked by the forearm from some person and brain damaged?
0: Yeah, It's interesting as you ask that because C.S. Lewis says this, and a number of people believe this, that if there is no God, he agreed, there is no evil, and so we shouldn't be complaining when things like this happen. But if you recognize pure evil and appalling wickedness, you have to recognize that there's this standard of goodness. And as Lewis says, it makes a powerful argument for the existence of God and not against it.
1: Let's let's move on because you've got a lot of great stuff here. Let's talk about the category called the meaning of life, where you address atheism and the meaning of life, theism. You know, funny you should talk about theistic evolution. I was raised Roman Catholic and I was a theistic evolutionist and I could argue it even as a junior high kid, better than some college grads. Cause I was, you know, <laughs> I knew something right. And yeah. it was that same comment slash question from a friend of mine. If God made Adam in his image, how do you deal with theistic evolution? And that set me on my heels. But anyway, that's for another time. Let's talk about okay. <laughs> let's talk about some of these things, the meaning of life. What's life all about? Is that all there is? Yeah.
0: You know, I think all thoughtful atheists recognize or believe and have to acknowledge that life is pointless. Life is meaningless. Because in order for there to be meaning in life, there has to be someone that designs us such that bestows meaning and purpose on our lives. And so you pretty much have to acknowledge that if there is no God, life is absurd, life is pointless, and it's, it's difficult to live that way. I will tell you this, the first time I ever really thought about this was, I, I don't know if you ever watched any of Woody Allen movies. I was probably in my mid-20s and I saw this movie called Play It Again, Sam. Allen believed because life was so absurd and pointless, the only way to deal with it is through humor. And so... Alan plays this character who's, he's a lonely single man and he's looking for a wife and he goes into the Guggenheim museum. There's this woman, this attractive woman, and she's looking at this Jackson Pollock painting of random drippings. And you know, it's just, it's, a it's pure modern yep. art obviously. Yeah. And she's just staring at it and, and he walks up next to her and he says, he's looking at it with her and, he says, what do you see in this? And her answer, I can't, <laughs> I can't repeat it exactly, but she said, I see nothingness. I see the absurdity of life. I see bleakness. And she goes on and on and he's kind of shaking his head like, yeah. And he says, so uh, w- what are you doing Saturday night? <laughs> she says, uh, well, I'm I'm thinking about committing suicide. He says, oh, okay. Um, what about Friday night? And so everybody breaks out laughing, but what? Alan, the point he makes is life is so bleak because there is no purpose in life. There is no meaning. Everything is pointless. The only way to deal with this is through comedy. And therefore, his movies have this dark comedy because of his worldview that there is no God and that there is no purpose. The problem is the Greeks come along. The Greek philosophers came along years ago and said that we are telic creatures. There's something about a human being. We are meaning-seeking, purpose-driven creatures. Yes. And Viktor Frankl has probably written the greatest book on this man's search for meaning, and he says, life is ultimately a quest for meaning. And this course, Michael gets us into more of a philosophical approach to life, and it's about answering the big questions. And the big questions are, who am I? Why am I here? What's the reason for my earthly life? And What's my ultimate destiny when this life is over? And it's interesting to compare the two worldviews, the godless worldview with the biblical worldview, in answering those questions. For instance, if there is no God, and you ask the question, who am I? Like I said a few minutes ago, I'm just a mass of chemicals. My life is nothing but matter. Why am I here? I'm here for no reason. I'm an accident. I'm just, you know, I guess I got to make my own meaning. Because there's no ultimate meaning for my life. And then what happens when I I die? What's my ultimate destiny? I go into everlasting nothingness. That's the response to meaning when it comes to the godless worldview. But you turn to the biblical worldview, and it answers these questions powerfully, very powerfully. Who am I? I'm a creature created in the image of God. My life has great worth and great importance. I am valued by God. Why am I here? The Bible gives us two clues if you put them together and answers the question. I'm made in the image of God. Doesn't mean I'm God. I've, got, I've been endowed with certain characteristics of God. And one of them is I'm a relational being. I'm to live in love relationships. Of course, people say, well, how do you know God's a relational being? Because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have been in relationship throughout eternity. And the second clue, is uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, it says, we exist for him. And Colossians says, we've been created through him and for him. So you put those two together, and God put us here to live in relationship with him. And then finally, what is my ultimate destination when I die? Eternal life in the kingdom of God. And so Christianity, the biblical worldview, tackles these questions, and life can be so fulfilling. In fact, in Kali, uh, what it says in Colossians 2.9, it says, in Christ, we have been made complete.
1: You mentioned Frankel, and you mentioned some existentialist authors. I was a student of Camus in college, as well as Frankel. In fact, I got to meet Victor Frankel. I got to hear him speak. Yep, and he was probably one of the last times he Get spoke. Get out of here. It was at SMU library, and we drove up from Stephen F. Austin, where I was in college at the time, and Nacogdoches group of us. No, I take that back. We were living in Dallas, uh, Fort Worth area at the time. And we went over to hear him speak and he was marvel he was very precise. He goes, I'm not uh-huh. trying to give you meaning in life. And I thought that was pretty Christian. He was so close. It's like Elie Wassell in night when they're killing uh-huh. the boy. And they're standing there as all these prisoners of war watching them murder this child. And someone behind Ellie says, Where is God? And someone else says, In the face of that child. Which I was Scratch my head at and go, what does that even mean? But, you know, there is this intrinsic, you know, there's <laughs> got to be something more. I know in, in the last time you and I talked was on your a True Measure of a Man book. And one of the things we and I talked about was purpose. You just mentioned purpose. Right, right. So, just as a little sidebar digression, you work with a lot of guys my age and our age and older. Richard, these guys have a hard time finding purpose. So, Put these two together for just a few minutes in your
0: thinking. That's kind of a profound uh, thought. Yeah, for so many men, they are looking for purpose in their identity. And so many men today get their identity based on what they do. Your
1: job. Yep. Your company.
0: And, yeah. And when in reality, you're setting yourself up for great disappointment in life because. It's just a matter of time before you're not able to perform up to your expectations. And this is a great struggle for men, Michael, is trying to figure out their lives. And that's why I'm of the belief that to really find yourself, to find your purpose, is that you have to find your identity in Christ. Basically, your worth and your value as a man is not based on your performance, God does not judge you or love you based on how well you perform in life. He loves you because you are, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. And that word workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, which means work of art, so that we are God's work of art. And so, yeah, the way you put this together is going back to what we just said. We're here to live in relationship with God. We need to realize how great greatly he values us and he loves us. And that we are unique; we're His unique work of art, and that is it. Kind of, I think, at the root of finding true purpose in life.
1: Let's move on to another area. You call it the psychology of unbelief, and some of the essay titles: psychological reasons to believe, a reason not to believe, willful blindness, willful blindness in the sciences, the problem of pride, which we could spend a whole hour talking about and the defective father theory. So why are you grouping these as a psychology of unbelief, Richard?
0: We could spend a lot of time talking about this, and it's a pretty fascinating section of the book. But it's it's kind of like people come to their beliefs so often because of factors that have nothing to do with what is true. Because that's ultimately, we should seek to believe the truth. There are so many things that influence us, When it comes to our relationship with God, the defective father theory is absolutely fascinating that so many young men and even women get their view of God based on how well their father treats them and how the kind of relationship they have with their father. Of course, some of them may not have a father. Some of them may be abused by their fathers. Mm -hmm. I think it's so crucial to have a father that really loves you and demonstrates that because that will have an impact on the way you see God. And that's just part, that's kind of, again, the the psychology of belief. The thing about pride is really big Mm -hmm. with men. I talk about Paul Vitz in that section. Uh, He's a very famous psychologist, and he was an atheist up until the time he was 30. But he realized, why was I an atheist? He said, because I realized my professors that had such an impact on me. There was two things I noticed about them. They were ambitious, and they hated religion. They had no belief in God, he said, so I wanted to please them, and I wanted to live up to their standards, and so I followed their, their views. Whether they were true or not, it didn't matter. He was influenced psychologically by these professors of his, and he, I see this in business. I've had men tell me, said they've said, you know, I believe what you're telling me is true, but I don't want to be a committed Christian because I'm concerned at how it might impact my career and what other people think about me. And so you've got all of these factors, Michael, that play into belief. And I'll give you a really good example of this. You'll appreciate this. Uh, I was wow. meeting with a young man. He grew up in a Hindu family, a really wonderful young man. Well, he started starts dating this young lady who's from a Christian family. Her parents are real committed. The problem was he didn't have any understanding of Christianity. He really had no understanding of anything about God. And they asked me to meet with him. And I did. And I told him, I said, it's important for you to realize you don't need to become a Christian to impress your girlfriend, who's now his fiance. And you don't need to become a Christian to impress her parents. You need to become a Christian for one reason, because you believe it's true and you want to commit yourself to it. That just was so important to him. when wanted to hear that. Yeah. Foreign
1: to him, probably. I mean, Yeah, (laughs) yes, it was. No pun intended. Sorry, that was bad. When you say psychology of unbelief, one of the things, I had a psych minor. I double majored, and I also had a psych minor. And it was many years later, I read Alan Bloom's book, The Closing of the American Mind, where he—
0: I read that too. Great book.
1: Profound, a sad man. But he had this inimical statement where he said, um, psychologists are the sworn enemies of guilt. Oh, wow. I say that from time to time, and all my psychologists and psychotherapists and shrink friends, you know, get a little upset with me. In fact, I had a psychiatrist recently say, "You triggered me this Sunday," and he laughed. <laughs> you know, I have a little bit of disdain for the field. So when you say the psychology of unbelief and Michael Easley's word brain, I'm putting these ideas together because psychology is today true to yourself. I mean, my Horizontal view. You're talking about Woody Allen and lack of purpose. I mean, you're food for worms at best. And with that nomenclature, kind of hardwired, I would say, in Americans' thinking today. And when you put those concepts together, that the psychology of unbelief. We don't need God. We need to be true to ourselves. We need to find what we enjoy. If I want to have an affair, if I want to make money, if I want to live on the beach or the mountains. And this I call it horizontal life, that it really is interesting to watch people not think about what's next. And as you and I both are in about the same age group, again, I tell people all the time, the runway's short, man. (laughs) 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 You know. When you're You're thirty, you don't think about the runway. When you're in your sixties, like, man, that (laughs) runway's coming up real fast. I gotta pull up or
0: crash or land. That's well said. You know, I tell you, as you're sharing this I recently spoke on the relationship between the mind and the heart, and it's pretty interesting that so many people believe so many of these atheists out here are atheists because they don't believe it in their minds. They you know, they have doubts, they have questions, they just don't believe it. But it's interesting to read about Mortimer Adler, yes. uh, one of the most famous teachers of philosophy and psychology, taught at the University of Chicago. He was an atheist until the age of 82, and he shocked everybody by becoming a Christian, and he lived to be 98. So he had 16 years to reflect on his life and his commitment to God, and he says, looking back, I realize all those years that I claimed being an atheist, I thought often about becoming a Christian. He said, but I realized I didn't want to live the Christian life, and so I claimed to be an atheist. And then once he became a Christian, he looked back and he says, now I realize my atheism was not intellectually driven. It was an issue of the will and the heart. I didn't want to interrupt my life.
1: In an earlier essay, you talk about pride, and I, I pejoratively said uh, we could spend you know the whole time talking about that. But, again, you worked with a lot more men than I have, Richard. But I, I just think this is the germ issue. You know, I'll be like God knowing good and evil and I think everything fell from pride. Cindy and I were married I don't think we were married a year, two years, and like many young married couples having conflicts and I remember we sat down at one point and I said, you know, when you boil down you're right or I'm right or I'm wrong or you're wrong, it really is pride. It has nothing to do with marriage and commitment and love. It has to do with pride. And that was a an epiphany for the two of us, you know, 40 some years ago, like, Oh my lands. And you know, 43 years and counting later, it's still a matter of <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm
1: right. Goodness gracious. Don't you understand? Yeah. And I just find this such a hardwired thing. Again, maybe it's just cause I'm a, a lousy Christian Richard, but you know, help me out <laughs> there. When you think about this whole issue of why people don't believe from an apologetic standpoint, which is where you're going, Why are we so? I got to be right. You know, where is the humility of, huh, maybe I should seriously consider this, Jesus? Well,
0: I think ultimately, when it comes to pride, and I, I do, I have an essay on, you know, pride and belief. And this is really also, Michael, in The True Measure of a Man, we have this great fear. We're always wondering, what do people really think about me? We're also always comparing ourselves with others. And in this particular essay in the book on pride, I use the, uh, and this is a talk that I give, you know, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he's been in the grave for four days. It's the most compelling evidence you'll ever find for Jesus being God. And yet some of them went to to the Pharisees and told them about it. But it says also, and this is in John, I believe it's 1243, it says, and many of the leaders wanted to believe in him, but they feared the religious leaders, and it says they love the approval of man more than they love the approval Approval of God. God. I think that's a real issue with, with, with men and women particularly.
1: Wow, Existence of God. Some of the essay titles, does God have a name? Is Jesus an historical figure? The evidence for Christ, impact on history, resurrection, and so forth. So you're kind of building these essays if I see the flow of your work. Why is it important for people? Because, you know, we talk about foxhole conversion, you know, um, the number (laughs) of times I've been in a hospital, you know, pre-COVID, it's more complex today, but I would go to a hospital to visit someone and I'd pray for, you know, the waiting room crowd. We'd pray for the, you know, folks in surgery or whatever. We'd pray for the doctors and the nurses and the staff. And I always gave my little mini lecture be the nicest people in the waiting room be the nicest patient be the most kind person that ever interacts with hospital staff you know that's your job and oh goodness 50 percent of the time being conservative someone would come up to me and ask me to pray for him yeah. just by seeing that and I'll never forget this one man burly guy with a hat looked like he could have been a truck driver perhaps and he came up and he was madder than a hornet and he said, I need it. Are you a preacher? Come over here, preacher. I didn't talk to you. And we went in one of those little consult rooms they used to have around the waiting room, yeah. you know, when you got, you got the bad yeah. news or the good, yep. you know, you hope they, they didn't call it. you in there. Like, Oh, this isn't good. But he pulls me over there and he goes, I don't know if I believe all this. And he used some colorful metaphors. I won't repeat, but he did not believe in God. But I asked him, I said, well, basically, why do you want to talk to me? Why at this moment of crisis, why do you want to talk to me, a preacher? You know, that was always one of those foxhole conversion things. It's when all the props are knocked out. It doesn't matter what my friends in the corporate world think or the golf course thinks or my wife thinks I stand before God.
0: Amen. Amen. You were going through the different essays on Jesus because when it gets right down to it, I build a whole whole argument that God exists. I make a very strong argument for it. I really do. But then the question is, okay, God exists. And I'm dealing with this right now with a guy who's a he's a neurosurgeon and he said, I'm not sure I believe in God. We go through a lot of the material in the book, and he comes he says, Yeah, I, I do believe in God. My next step was wanting to go through and say, Well, who is this God? And let's talk about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, we hadn't we hadn't gotten back together, so he believes in God, but he doesn't know who God is. Right. But I I will say this, I, I believe there are two there are a lot of strong argument for the existence of God. But I think the two strongest arguments are, one, the fine-tuning of the universe, which I have a section on that. That's very, very powerful. But then the second is the person of Christ as the son of God. And this is what I've learned, is the evidence for Jesus being God is overwhelming. We can talk a little bit about that if you want to, but it's overwhelming. And yet people just don't know it. They don't know what it is. And so I'm a big believer in the importance of evidence, believing responsibly, looking at the evidence and believing responsibly. And let me just give you one example of just how powerful this is. In the section on the evidence for the resurrection, and you, know, you can go into, you can talk about the changed lives of the disciples, the theories about the missing body. Mm-hmm. But this is something that I, I just want to share with you that I just find just very powerful. When I was researching my book on the reliability of Scripture called Reliable Truth, I did some research on the resurrection. And one of the things that I noticed that I ran into five or six scholars who had set out to disprove the resurrection. Yes. I mean, and some of them, you know, like Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, Frank Morrison, who was a famous attorney, J.D. Anderson, Gilbert West, and then Sir William Ramsey. They all set out to disprove the resurrection. Now, Ramsey set out to discredit Luke, which in one sense would discredit the resurrection. And he was a famous archaeologist. But this is what's so incredible, Michael. All six of them, these are scholarly people, real intellectuals. They couldn't put a dent in it. And this is what's so incredible. Six of them became Christians. To interrupt. All six of them became
1: Christians. To interrupt, to go back to um, Greenleaf. You know, was that the testimony of the evangelists? I get them mixed up. I slept. Yeah, Greenleaf.
0: Since then. I, I'm f- I'm familiar with Greenleaf. But, I've read one of his books, but I, I he's not. I didn't know he might be a seventh one. I didn't know that he he came to Christ he, that way. He
1: was one, and I may have I um, may be mixing these stories up, and I don't know if it was Josh's books or whatever, but he was the one, and I read his book years ago. There was a student at Harvard, if memory serves. He was a law professor. He wrote the laws of legal evidence. That was the book he wrote. The laws of legal evidence that was used in a compendium for law school. Yeah. And yes. he said, you basically, you need to apply the very, you know, laws of legal evidence to the resurrection. And he took like some time off and eventually a sabbatical. And if memory serves a year and he went and he wrote, came back and wrote the testimony of the evangelist. And basically, if I remember correctly, that was his conversion. And there is a Simon Greenlee school of law. In California, I think, I'm not sure. You know, I, but re-
0: I remember that now. That was in Josh McDowell's book. He okay. would be a seventh person that you could add to the Check list. Check my
1: details because, you know, so many things in my brain, <laughs> they, they, they really sound good <laughs> in my head and they could be wrong. But, yeah, evidence that demands a verdict was a remarkable accomplishment in that day for college campuses. Today, of course, we have a different college campus. But let me try to land the plane on our short runway. You gave okay. two very compelling reasons for belief, one being I I would call evidence, not just scholarly, but ontological argument. I mean there's some really good evidence, but you talked about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Expand on that one a little bit. Why, I mean he's a name in a book. Why is that somehow apologetic evidence, Richard, that I should believe?
0: Yeah, really good question. I always make this statement that if I had to go into a court of law and try to prove to a jury that Jesus was the son of God, that he was God, I would make four arguments. One of them I just shared with you about the evidence for the resurrection. But I'll share two more. I got three more, that. but this one's very powerful to me, the impact he had on history. I mean, H.G. Wells, who's one of the greatest historians to ever live, who was not a Christian, says Jesus Christ was the most dominant figure in all of human history. Now, think about that. You've got Plato, the greatest of all Greek philosophers. He taught and wrote for 50 years, Socrates and uh, Aristotle for 40 years. And here you have this Judean peasant, Jesus, who has only three years of public life. He never writes down anything. Now, people wrote down his words, but he never wrote anything. He taught for three years, and of course, he did do miracles. And yet he is the most dominant figure in all of human history. How do you explain that? And how do you explain this guy who just, again, he lived in this desolate place in the Middle East? Today, time revolves around his birth, B.C. and A.D. So you've got his impact on history, and it's just so hard to explain how he could have done that. The second evidence for the resurrection I think third, I find to be very powerful, the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. And since we're short on time, I I want to really focus on the last one because it's probably has meant more to me than any of the others. Think about it. Jesus, the most dominant figure in all of human history, he didn't have any power. He had this huge impact on the world, but not through power and not like a king, like a Julius Caesar. He had no wealth. No, he owned nothing. He was not like Solomon, who was just filthy rich. He did not have any grand education. Based on what you see in Matthew and Isaiah 53, he didn't have any magnetic personality. He was pretty plain. And yet he is the most dominant figure in human history. How did he do it? And this is what I love. He did it through humility. The power of living a humble life. And that to me is a picture of how God wants us to impact the world through living humbly. I love what Napoleon what he said about Jesus. First of all he says I along with uh, along with Julius Caesar and along with um, Alexander. Alexander the Great. He says, we sought to conquer the world. And he says, we all failed. And then he says, yet this Judean peasant stretches his hands across the centuries and controls the destinies of men and nations. I think that says it all right there.
1: I can't remember... If it was Visions of Grandeur or what book it was, again, I've slept since then, but there was an opening section about if you could take a magnet and remove all the vestiges of biblical Christianity out of the world, there would be no magnet that That's could powerful. hold it. I've never know, heard that. Days of Sodom and Gomorrah or, you know, uh, whatever, the biblical plagues or, you know, whatever the phraseology may be, not to mention the, the lives that it has impacted. I thought you were going to say changed lives because that's one that I often appeal to just from, and I'm not an experiential guy, but from experience going, I can point to you a lot of people who were going one direction and Christ got a hold of them and their life changed 180 degrees. And Michael Easley's one of them, a stupid teenager using drugs and one day come to the end of my rope and here i am all these years (laughs) later richard simmons author of the reason for life power of a human life wisdom sex at first sight a life of excellence the true measure of a man reliable truth safe passage remembering the forgotten god and now the book we're talking about today reflections on the existence of god all the information about richard can be found in the show notes of the podcast as always richard thanks for your time by the way there are qr codes are running around the web world magazine i think we'll probably put one up on our site as well but if you use that code you can download a chapter of the book for free to whet your appetite richard always great to talk to you brother if you get to tennessee michael dinner's on me
0: You're (laughs) on. Listen, it's a pleasure. Uh, You do a great, great interview, and I enjoyed it very much.
1: Well, I enjoy having you on, brother. We'll see you again soon, God willing.
0: Good deal. I look forward to it.
2: Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters. have been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to Richard at richardesimmons3.com.